Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. We're a largely immigrant nation. People just move on, and that's been part of our success. People move on, they don't bring their baggage with them, but that, that hasn't worked for the Indigenous people because that's uh, the policies of discrimination and disruption have meant that inheritances have been taken, land is gone, language is gone, culture is gone, so that has had an intergenerational impact. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me in Sydney is the Liberal Senator, Andrew Bragg. Say hello, Andrew. G'day, Murphy. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. Andrew is a Liberal Senator from New South Wales. He entered Parliament in 2019. Now, you are not at all a newbie to politics. You've kicked around for some considerable period of time, but you are new to parliamentary service. So let's not assume the listeners know all about you. Give me the Andrew Bragg story in, I don't know, four sentences. Uh, well, I grew up in Shepparton and I then moved to Sydney after that and I'm interested in spending my time in Parliament as well as I can. And the two things I talked about in my first speech were about fixing super and working on reconciliation. So that's what I'm doing. Yes. And just to be clear, Andrew and I are speaking today about Indigenous issues because he's written this new book called Baraja, uh, which I recommend to you. I think it's a really interesting piece of work and we're going to traverse some of the territory around Indigenous policy in this conversation. As you set up, and I have, you've been active on Indigenous issues since you entered Parliament. And as you said, you used your first speech to raised two issues, one of which was constitutional recognition and Mm. you also favoured a voice to Parliament. So, as I said a minute ago, you've written this new book which sets out the Liberal case for reconciliation. Now, if you've not read this, guys, the book is sort of part history of the Liberal Party in Indigenous policy and it's part Andrew's views about how what well, what needs to be done and how one might go about doing it. So let's just start with the history because I found that interesting. Mm. Uh, well, at a number of levels, right? In terms of your recount, we've got Holt and Bill Wentworth uh, moving the dial quite significantly with the referendum and with early thinking around co-design, which was quite interesting to me. Then we hit 
Malcolm Fraser and land rights, obviously significant achievement. Then we kind of skid into the terrible wasteland of the Howard era. See, I said that, Andrew, so you don't need to. Then we move into the Abbott-Turnbull period. Now, both of these more recent Liberal Prime Ministers were interested in Indigenous policy and Indigenous people and how to achieve advancement, but both of them were cold on the voice. So if we sort of look at that sweep of history, political history, for somebody outside the Liberal Party, there's a kind of obvious question that gets begged, which is why why the stop-start? Why are some Liberal Prime Ministers able to really grab this issue and including staring down opponents in the, in the party room why are some liberal prime ministers able to grab it and and move it and some not well there's a couple of things i'd say here and the first thing is i mean i'm not indigenous and i'm not seeking to speak for any indigenous people but i thought it was important that i engage on this material because i think when you stand back and you look at australia uh, this is the, the, the major unfinished business. And uh, as a representative of the Liberal Party, my concern was that we had not sufficiently understood our contribution, the contribution of liberalism to Indigenous policy. Now, there has been good and bad, uh, but there's been some good. And my sense was that if we wanted to be ambitious in the present around things like the Uluru Statement, we really needed to understand that we've actually been here before And no one remembers Harold Holt for having delivered the referendum. No one remembers, I mean, maybe some people remember Malcolm Fraser for land rights, but we really need to recapture that uh, if we are to be ambitious in the present, as I say. I was talking to Josh Frydenberg about this the other day uh, because he's doing a launch of the book in Victoria. And I sort of made the point that the Victorian Liberal Party, actually, which has got its own issues today, I mean, the Victorian Liberals historically have made the biggest contribution. If you think about the uh, the Menzies government and voting rights, the Holt government and the referendum and then Fraser and land rights, I mean, the whole thing has been yeah. delivered from Victoria. So I think uh, there has been that strong tradition of, of experimentation and advancement in the Liberal tradition. And I'm, I'm anxious that we continue that in, in the future. But it's, it's, it's not so much I'm, I'm paying... Mm. I'm, I'm paying the history, right? The history is mm. is as you've recounted it. And I'm not also su- suggesting that stop-start is the province of one side of politics. Mm. There's been stop-start across the board, right? Like So, you know, that those two things, I guess, should be a given. But there is... Uh, is it something intrinsic to the personality of the Prime Minister, their own interests... Is it a point in history? Like you say in the book, I think in passing, you sort of touched down briefly that uh, things were obviously fraught in the Abbott-Turnbull era because by that stage we'd entered the sort of assassination cycle mm. of political leaders, right? So I'm just interested in unpacking that a little if we can. Is it, is it you know, does this need to be assessed as as a point in time issue, right? That a, that a Prime Minister occupies the office at a certain point in time, they have so much capital, they decide where they're going to spend it. Uh, is, is it that or is it is it the spectrum of leaders that we're talking about okay. from moderate to very conservative? I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested okay. in the answer to so the question. So I, I think you need two, I think you need two things. And I say this as a, you know, as a 36 year old person with, with not a long period in the parliament. But my sense is 
you need to have two things. You need to have a a leader that is interested in these issues and, and regards these issues as serious for the nation, serious in terms of the success of the nation at an individual level, but also serious in terms of the nation's credibility. And until we fix these issues, I, you know, I think we're going to have a restlessness in many of us. And then you need to have a party room that will allow you to do what you need to do. Now, the problem with the Abbott-Turnbull era is that we left that era, which is when the Uluru Statement was presented. And by the way, the Uluru Statement is the third similar request from the Indigenous people, which follows the 1963 Bark Petitions, which was given to the Menzies government and the Barunga Statement in 88, which went, to, yep. which went to Bob Hawke and he said he was going to do a treaty and then he cried about it on his last day and really didn't deliver a treaty or anything substantive in that area. So this is the third crack. Now, we sort of left that era with two things that were bobbing around in the party room. One, the voice was a third chamber, mm. not true. And two, this campaign from the IPA that race has no place, also not true because, of course, we have 18 different laws on the statute books today, which are race-based laws made for Indigenous people. Native title, heritage protection, land rights, Aboriginal corporations, even One Nation would accept that those laws are desirable and will, will remain a part of the Australian legal system. So I think uh, what I've tried to do with this book is to present the arguments that are needed to push back on the third chamber and the race has no place angles, because though those those campaigns have salted the earth in terms of that, that second part, which is getting broad party room support. Because in the era of closed parliaments, I think, to be candid, you, you need to, to carry the bulk of your party room on controversial issues like this. Well, that's really what I'm asking. That's what I'm trying to unpack. Mm. It's, it's sort of, it's not it's not a smart-ass question. It's, it's, I'm trying to understand the differences. And obviously, for for a, a liberal leader like John Howard, mm. who was coming after the Keating era, and faced off against many of the cultural aspects of the Keating era, mm. and there were uh, the history of the Howard era. I think would be familiar to a lot of people listening in yeah. terms of you know uh, it, it all went to poop in terms of the relationships and it picked up towards the end. But like I can understand John Howard because of John Howard's worldviews, sort of being you know, not particularly open to persuasion on this issue. But I think it's sort of there's something about the contemporary dynamic that's that we need to get to. And I think you have. You're basically saying that parliaments are closer, political leaders are living through various assassination cycles. You need to carry the party room or, you know, or you can't really move that far. But is it is it priority mm. as well, though? It's got to be priority as well. Like when – because you came into parliament – you identified this as a priority, right? Not everybody does. Mm. So has it got to be priority as well as carrying the party room? Well, I, I think we're at a point in time where we could actually get something done that is historic. And in terms of those big historic changes, the referendum, land rights, for example, I mean, native title, which was delivered by the High Court and then codified by the, by the Keating government. I mean, those are the three big, those are three big changes. We haven't had a successful referendum since 1977. Um, yep. If we wanted to have a, a constitutional amendment to put an obligation on the Commonwealth to consult with Indigenous people on laws and policies which affect them, that would be a, a historic change. 
Uh, that is a that is that is something that I think that could be within our grasp. Mm. And what I would say about the prime minister is, he has changed the closing get the gap targets radically. Mm. In collaboration, at the request through of through a co-design, the, right? Through a co-design process, right? Which has been yes. he's done that. He's also done the uh, funded the the voice co-design. Uh, he's also changed the anthem. So I think he has done. He has made some important changes already. Uh, I am hope, hoping that we can build on that. Mm. Let's think about the voice for a minute, because mm. you correctly say that one of the things that kind of killed it at the start was this idea that it was a third chamber. I think Barnaby Joyce was sort of first out of the But he changed his Um, mind. He's he's since recanted. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh, Barnaby. Uh, Yes. Uh, So, uh, but but that was, uh, you know, that was sort of the first, uh, but then Turnbull adopted that language as well, that third chamber language as well. Mm. It was, it it was, doesn't matter who said it, it was false. Uh, Anyway, but a lot of people listening, though, to us will not really have a clear sense of what the voice is. Right. So wh- why don't you have a crack? Okay, well, it does two things. Firstly, a voice would give Indigenous people a say over laws and policies which are made for them on the ground, uh, but also in relation to national policy. Uh, and so there would be a local voice and a national voice. Um, it also delivers a symbolic need so I describe this as a debate that has hard elements and soft elements. The hard elements are the constitutional elements. The softer elements are the symbolism components. Uh, and as Tony Abbott has said many times, our constitution is incomplete. So putting that obligation in the constitution would be a form of meaningful uh, recognition in the constitution, which the, I think the nation needs to do. So that's what a voice would do. There are many different ways it could be drafted. Um, I've put forward a proposed solution in my book because I, I thought that it was important that I'm not, I'm not a legal expert, but I'm a, a legislator and I'm someone who's had some experience with public campaigns. I was involved with the same-sex marriage debate and I know that you need to have simple, clean, clear, uh, often minimalist language if you're seeking to get public support for a change like this. Mm. And and you do outline, yeah, it's sort of, I guess it's stripped, you're, it's stripped back to the to the nth degree, the language that you recommend, and it's uh, and you raise the same-sex marriage history again. Mm. If listeners are unaware, Andrew was very active in the the same-sex marriage campaign in terms of persuading liberals to get behind that change. And there are some well similarities. Yes. There are some. Sim- I agree. Either, either way, it's a campaign, right? Mm. It's mm. A, like these are important important historic profound things but but in order to achieve them one needs to build a successful campaign around them and i know you're bringing that mindset to it so that reflects your own proposal with that campaign mindset do you think that you're emphasizing the opportunity right and we are at a point of opportunity where we can actually decide to not screw this up we can actually decide to deliver this thing which needs to be delivered but there are a lot of distractions, though, obviously, as well. We're in, mm-hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. We're still coming out of a recession. Do you think the sort of broad atmospherics are are there in order to run a successful campaign in terms of implementing this thing, assuming that your own party room doesn't lose its shit, not to put too fine a point on it? Uh, I think because we have been promising this at every election since 2007, since John Howard put constitutional recognition on the table, I think at the urging of Noel Pearson, 
Um, yeah. No one would be surprised if we renewed our commitment to that particular course of action. The question would come down to what is the wording uh, uh, that you're proposing? And I think the wording, if it's minimalist and clean and clear and still achieves the outcome that the Indigenous people are seeking, then I think we could put that forward with a, with a decent chance of, of getting it adopted. You would need to have bipartisan support. And I, I would like to think that we could use a historic opportunity we have of having Australia's first uh, Aboriginal person in the role as Minister for Indigenous Australians and that he could work in concert with his counterpart, Linda Burney, um, as part of that that development of that final set of wording. Um, but I mean, I think in terms of the current environment, though, to answer your question properly, uh, I mean, I think we should take a commitment to the next election to hold a referendum in the next term of parliament on this issue. We've been talking about this for 15 years, almost. I mean, how much longer are we seriously going to spend having inquiries and reviews into it? No, well, precisely. Uh, but somehow we've got to get ourselves out of the cul-de-sac that we've we've ended up in, right, which is your purpose, obviously, in constructing these arguments in the way that you are uh, trying to construct them. So, it, uh, so, but you also are of the view, are you not, that mm. there should be, in this term of parliament, a, a, a legislated voice, so some sort of, I mean, you'll probably uh, laugh or say I'm an idiot, but I, I always visualise the voice when I want to think about what this thing is. Mm as some sort of reconstituted ATSIC, mm-hmm. that kind of model, right? So am I, I'm representing your views correctly, am I, Andrew, in saying that in this parliament you a legislated voice tick, good idea, but take the commitment for constitutionally enshrined at the next election. Is that correct? Well, what I've said is we should, because there are some people who want to push this into a ravine, um, which is legislation only. Yes. So what I think the what I think the most important thing is not the timing of the legislation, but that there is a commitment to end a conversation that John Howard started on constitutional reform with a constitutional reform, and that is something that I don't think we should do in this term of parliament. We're not ready. Mm-hmm. I think we should have that commitment, and then I, I don't mind whether we legislate before or after. I mean, the the, the most important thing is getting the commitment. And then agreeing on the words and putting and putting the question in the next term, um, we have to make sure that we have a, a good chance of winning. Because I think, as everyone has said, I mean, losing a referendum like this would be a disaster for 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 the nation. But we have to be realistic that we haven't passed a successful referendum for forty forty is it forty one years. Yeah, it's a long time. But mm. still, it's some of the successful referendums of the past have involved advancing the cause of Indigenous people in this country. So sort of two ways to look at it. But And, and I know what you mean about the, the ravine about the legislation, right? Because I talk to your colleagues um, mm. regularly. There are some in your own party room that I, I don't... I mean, I hate to be pessimistic, but I, I do not see that the, they are open to persuasion on the constitutional question, that any anything that touches the constitution generates a, well, a, a strong response from constitutional conservatives in the Liberal and National Parties. Am I wrong about that? <laughs> uh, well, you're a member of the party room. I'm not. I just talked to you all. Of course, uh, there is a. I mean, the, the the thing is, our, our policy has been to have 
have a constitutional amendment since 2007. That's, that's been John's... Sorry, that, that was John Howard's policy. So mm-hmm. that, that, that is our policy. The, the, the question is, is it going to be uh, one that the broad majority of colleagues will be happy with? I have to say I've been quite surprised about the response to the book. I think there are more, more colleagues in the Libs and the Nats that are open-minded about this. Uh, than I thought that there, there perhaps would be. I think that there is a... I think you hear, you hear about the noisy people who say constitution never, and I respect, I respect their opinion on this, but I think it's not consistent with the commitment that we've had since 2007 to recognise Indigenous people in the constitution. I mean, as Tony Abbott said ad nauseum, the constitution is incomplete, so we need to complete it. And this is... The, the Indigenous people are not interested in having... Uh, you know, a flowery statement in the Constitution. They're interested in having something which empowers empowers them, uh, provides agency, and putting an obligation on the Commonwealth to engage Indigenous people when when they make when we make laws for Indigenous people is fair, reasonable, and uh, this is an important point, Murph. I just want to make that. I mean, at the moment, you have a system where you've got eighteen different laws on the books made for Indigenous people, special laws the only racial group that has a slew of special laws. But you don't have a system to manage that. So what you have oh. now is a fundamentally a liberal system. And what, yes. I'm, what I'm saying is we should ha- the Liberal Party should be putting in place... No, it should li- be Liberals. The Liberal Party what, should, what should is, be putting... What is wrong with you? <laughs> the Liberal Party the liberal should be putting in place a liberal system, yeah. Yes. But, but, but seriously, like, and the whole purpose of this book... Well, not the whole purpose, but, but some of the purpose in this book has been... Mm. Uh, sort of making reconciliation or making these issues a liberal cause, aligning progress with core liberal philosophy. Correct. Uh, that's that has been your purpose, and and for obvious reasons because uh, before we even get to the external constituency, which is the Australian public, mm. there is an internal constituency where a certain amount of persuasion has to happen, and that's that's where you're structuring the arguments to appeal to people inside your own show who say, I'm not interested in anything that touches the Constitution. So you've said the, re- the response to the book has been good. You've, you've had good feedback internally. But uh, apart from laying out the arguments, which you do in the book, for, for why Indigenous advancement is a liberal cause, and it absolutely is. I mean, it's sort of the staggering thing is that someone's got to write a book to try and point this out. <laughs> but anyway, you are, imagine yourself, you are sitting across the table from this, the, the most staunch cons, uh, constitutional conservative in your own show. You have the floor, Andrew. What do you say to that person? Uh, if you want to have special laws, you have to have a special system. That is, that is the core of this. Because Denying people, as say, over special laws that are made for them is fundamentally illiberal. That is the that, that is the argument. And as I say, even One Nation accepts that there should be laws like native title and land rights. I mean, you have this ridiculous position where you pass amendments to, like the Native Title Act, and you've got no idea what the people think about the laws that you're changing. Mm. So I, I, I just think, I mean, you know, we could, we could do worse things and get, get more feedback from the people of Australia. By the way, this is non-binding advice. I'm talking about non-binding advice. I'm talking about a system which maintains parliamentary supremacy because that is, that's important to me. I mean, I, I would consider myself to be a constitutional conservative. I think it's been a good practical charter of government. 
Um, I don't believe in a Bill of Rights. Um, I don't believe in flowery statements being in the Constitution either. As, as Scalia in the US said, if people want to see flowery language, they should look at the Declaration of Independence, not the Constitution. So I, I think if you put a, 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 a obligation in the Constitution to consult people where you make special laws, that, that, would, be, that would be totally consistent with conservative and liberal orthodoxy. Mm. And but if you can't, if you get to the point, and I know this is the question you don't want to engage with, but it, it is the nub of the thing. Yeah. If you can't, if there is a, a a core group in the in the party room who just can't be persuaded on the constitutional question, what do you do then? Do you uh, do you step back and, and say, look, we'll do we'll do a legislated model because that's all we can achieve. And uh, and progress comes in increments. Uh, is that where you go, or do you just not? Well, presumably you don't want to concede the point, but it but it is the key. It is the nub of the thing. So, what do you do if you're if you're faced with a legislated option or or, or mm. nothing? What's what's the re- what what do you do? Well, as I say, I mean this is a conversation which started about constitutional recognition. So. It needs to end with constitutional recognition. Um, if you can't come to an agreement um, within the parliament or within within the party, then I think you're going to have a major a major issue because the commitment that we've made uh, we have to deliver on. Um, and the caravan has moved on from flowery preambles. I mean, no one, mm. I can't find any indigenous people who are interested in that. Uh, so. Uh, we will need to find a way to make this work. In a, it's got to be bipartisan as well, right? I mean, there's no way that a referendum is going to be won in Australia which is not, not bipartisan. No, that's absolutely right. And uh, and uh, uh, as Pat Dodson said memorably, I think it was last year, he said he was over the failed path of soft reconciliation measures, making white folks feel good and doing nothing to heal wounds or achieve unity. I think that's a very common... A uh, bit of feedback that you get from Indigenous people. The longer that this has mm. gone on without an appropriate resolution, uh, the, the, the harder it is for white parliamentarians to stand up and say to the Indigenous people of Australia, "Look, can you just deal with this compromise? Because we we're so shit, mm. we can't actually come to terms with what you're what you're asking us to do." Right? Like that window. If if that window existed, that's over. Right? That's not going to fly. No, no. So. We're coming up to the fourth anniversary of Uluru in a few in a few weeks, uh, so I think it's a good time for us to take stock on where we are. We have the co-design process, which is underway. Uh, the the way that that uh, parliamentary report, which was chaired by Dodson and Julian Lisa, uh, was framed, was that once co-design was completed, then the government should turn its mind to legal and constitutional arrangements. Uh, and I'm, as I say, hopeful that we will we will be as ambitious as we can be in making a commitment in that. In that space. Mm. What do you think? I just want to do this. Um, uh, we could go on for a bit, but we're up against the time. Uh, what do you think about history and truth telling? You address this in the book and you address, you know, liberals can't ignore Black Lives Matter and the, and the whole kind of social movement around that, which has kind of jumped into the Australian context Etc. What What do you think about the importance of that of makarata of of truth telling of of that element of healing and mm. uh, reconciliation? What do you What do you think about that? Well, I think in terms of truth telling, of course, we should tell the truth. We should tell the truth about the full balance of our history. 
I think in schools we do a much better job of that now. I mean, I, I, I notice it in my own children. Uh, but in a place like, I mean, Canberra is a purpose-built capital, right? I mean, it's one of only three, Canberra, Brasilia and Washington, D.C. Brasilia. Right? <laughs> Hilarious, <laughs> yeah. right? And, but yeah. if, if you walk around, I spent half my life in Canberra now, and I went to uni there, so I know, I know it reasonably well. You know, there's no significant Indigenous institution inside the Palms of Triangle. Mm. Uh, there's uh, now more statues, as you know, of dogs than there are of women and Indigenous people in Canberra. And there are no, no Aboriginal or Torres Strait Island flags permanently displayed inside the parliament. Um, so I think that's a big gap in, mm. in our national life. So I think we need to do a better job of that in our national capital. And I would like us to deal with the flags issue, deal with the statues. And I am very keen for us to fund a national resting place to be inside the parliamentary triangle. I think that's very important. Um, in terms of truth-telling on the ground, I mean, th- this often comes down to place names and uh, I think we should be open-minded about having Indigenous and non-Indigenous place names uh, for sites around, around the country. Uh, and mm. if there is a role for Canberra here, it, it would be to fund a commission, as Uluru talks about, or you could get AATSIS, which does a great job, um, to work with local groups to facilitate that. I mean, I mean AATSIS, by the way which was set up by, by the Menzies government, was designed to preserve and protect Aboriginal culture and heritage and language. And that's exactly what it's done with, with the name of this book, Baraja, which is from the Daruga language, from the Yuan people. Ayatsis worked with three local teachers to bring this language back to, back to life um, with a dictionary which is now used in the, in the local areas around the south coast of New South Wales. So like that, like that is a living example of a program from... 70 years ago almost, which is, which is bearing fruit. So I think this stuff is important. And what do you think about out in the public? Because you sort of mention in the book that we mm. Australians. Oh, well, I think I think I think it's Stan Grant you're quoting that uh, that we sort of inhabit our history lightly. We don't. Mm. We're not inclined to interrogate it. We inhabit it lightly. Do you think that's still true? Yes, yeah, because most... we don't think about it. We don't think about it. It hasn't worked for us, as Stan says, because we're, we're a largely immigrant nation. People just move on. And that's been part of our success. People move on. They don't bring their baggage with them. But that, that hasn't worked yeah. for the Indigenous people because that's uh, the policies of discrimination and disruption have meant that inheritances have been taken, land is gone, language is gone, culture is gone. So that has had an in- intergenerational impact. Uh, which is applied solely to the Indigenous people. And that's why I think, I mean, some people might laugh at me and say this is just symbolic rubbish. But, you know, I think that the thing, if the seat of government could do a better job of reflecting Indigenous culture, I think that would say a lot about our country. And I think, mm. think that that would help lift, lift the standard. I mean, as, as Laura Tingle said about New Zealand, I mean, when they open Parliament in New Zealand, um, they wear cloaks. Um, you know, I think that's a great mark of respect. And I think we need to integrate in a respectful way, with the right consent, um, some of that culture into our national life, I think it would go a long way. I mean, I think younger people in particular are proud to be part of this continent, which has got this incredible culture, language and history. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't, that goes beyond the symbolic, I think, in terms of how the, the house of the people reflects 
reflects the history and the, and the truth of the of the country and the continent. I think it is beyond the symbolic, which is which is your point. Now, uh, just last question: yeah. um, You mentioned Josh Frydenberg's going to launch the book in Victoria, mm-hmm. uh, and without putting people into camps uh, and tribes. Uh, like <laughs> no, 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 seriously, because uh, like it's those those labels don't always work and. But there's going to there's going to in order to get this done in the way that you think it ought to be done, it's going to take a number of people in the Liberal Party mm. committed to this cause who are prepared to put some capital on the line in order to achieve it. It can't just be Ken and you. It just like <laughs> it just it just can't. It's got to be. There's got to be a bigger groundswell. So do you think uh, some of those people who have mm-hmm. been positive about your book are going to actually start to carry some water on this issue, well, start to advocate more forcefully for it? Well, firstly, I agree with you that people need to take risks. I mean, otherwise, what's the point of being in public office? I mean, the whole point of being in public office is to advance important agendas for the people. There's no point of sitting in the office. So, of course, you've got to spend, spend your capital. I'm hopeful that the capital will be spent on this issue. I should say that Stephen Marshall, I think, has done a great job by committing to putting in place a voice to Parliament when he launched the book in Adelaide. That is creating competitive pressure inside the Federation. I know that other state premiers are considering uh, that. And if, if, if the states can stand a voice up in their own jurisdictions, I would have thought that's, that, that helps, Ken. That helps mm. show that it's not a third chamber. Um, it's not going to be the end of the world. Uh, so um, I'm optimistic that the others who are proposing to launch this book in New South Wales and Victoria will spend some capital. Yes. Well, that, wouldn't that be nice? We're yes. watching, guys. <laughs> just just so you know, we're watching. Anyway, Andrew, thank you. Appreciate the conversation. Again, the book is Baraja, which presumably you can get through e-books, bookshops, etc. Track it down. It's worth your time to process both the history of of the Liberal Party in relation to this issue, and also, if if you're a bit fuzzy on the voice, if you don't really understand what this whole debate is about, because it, the debate, you know, is continually overrun by other things, there, there's some good summary exposition in the book that can bring people up to speed with where this debate has sort of gone over the last 15 years or so. So thank you again, Andrew. Thank you to Hannah, who's listening in for a remote recording today. Good one, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer of the show. Thank you to you guys for listening and sharing and all that jazz. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, 
miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon.